Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, episode 15, where we're traveling to 1957, and the 14th winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, Norman Dello Joyo for his Meditations on Ecclesiastes. And this, uh, I, was, I was confused. I'll just start right out by saying I was confused. I thought this was a, a choral piece because... It I'm has thinking, text. Yeah, text, right. Ecclesiastes, I'm not a Bible expert, but I know that uh, that's, a, uh, that's kind of like the... Well, Turn, Turn, Turn is the song I think of. Of course, kind that's of what a, you would know. <laughs> that, yes, yes. There's a time for a time to be born, a time to die, all of that stuff. And I thought there'd be a chorus in this, but it turns out it's actually uh, an orchestral, string orchestra work. And I don't know about you, Andrew, but Norman Della Joyo, uh, being a former band person myself, I remember playing several of his works in wind ensemble and band. So. Yeah, that's that's what I knew him from. Yeah. Was, what is it, Variations on Haydn? There's yes, that. Yep, and Variants um, on a Medieval Tune. Medieval, yeah, the Medieval Tune. That's that's what I knew him from. It's like, oh, he wrote band works. Yeah, um, yeah. And then, then I go to Grove Dictionary and begin to, you know, we start doing our research. That's where I always start. And, oh, he's known for his choral works. And I'm very confused, of course, by that. Uh, yeah. So it allowed us to kind of dig in a little deeper to who this guy was. But I, I, my background with him was exactly yours. Yeah, and so I, I had not heard another note of his other than band music. But it turns out as... I think as a running theme in this podcast is that each of the composers has a much more varied output and background than you might think. And so Norman Jello Joyo has a pretty fascinating background. So I, I think we'll learn a lot about him and why this piece sounds the way it does. Yeah, well, let's, let's start with telling the story. Telling the story. So Della Joyo, long life. So born yes. in 1913, he lived till 2008, and he composed like all the way through. I mean, he was 95, he was still composing kind of um, amazing output. Uh, maybe this is something also with the Pulitzer. We talk about Elliot Carter in exactly. the episodes. That's immediately the exact, I was thinking of. Yeah. The exact same story. Yep. These long-lived Pulitzer winners, maybe. Um, but his background is, uh, to my mind, reading through it, it's very Italian. Mm-hmm. He's got organist father and organist grandfather and they're the ones who taught him and he began by playing in church but yeah um, he's a new and a new yorker too so. he's a new yorker so that um fits right in mm-hmm. um also trained as a pianist uh but I, in reading there are kind of three influences that i think are going to be important in understanding why he chose this subject and how he chose to put the subject together so first was growing up around catholic liturgy and catholic liturgical chant um but also his father was an opera coach Mm-hmm. and coach for the Met Opera. So I think that was another thing on him was, you know, hearing these famous opera stars, the Metropolitan Opera, seeing this Italian literature, people like Verdi, and just coming um, in love with Italian opera. And then finally, I think also if you look at his dates, 1913, he's coming of age at the same time jazz is coming of age in New York. And so he was hearing jazz and that became a huge influence on his music as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. The uh, uh, He also worked as an organist at... At least a right. couple of churches, so that 
uh, like another former Pulitzer Prize winner, Charles E. Ives, you, uh, as an organist, you certainly learn a lot about uh, religious music and the sp liturgy and all of that. So it can't help but influence you. And you think uh, variations, uh, variants on a medieval tune for band is on uh, in dulci jubilo. Right. Forgive, forgive my Latin, uh, but that's that's another famous Christmas uh, tune. So. Uh, yeah, so it's very much part of his whole ethos, and I think the, the get when you get the if you listen to this piece and you listen to those other pieces, uh, the the lyricism really stands out. And then, which is funny because you look at his teachers. So, <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, so he studied with. Uh, well, you you mentioned he went to Juilliard. He went to Juilliard and, mm -hmm, and, studied, and he studied with. Yeah, Bernard Bernard Wagner, who we talked Vog, about, is I don't know if it's Wagner. Wagner, it's, it's, he's Dutch, I believe. Oh, so it's probably Wagner. Yeah. Well, he, we'll see his name a couple of times because he was teaching at Juilliard, but we've seen it before here. And actually, as we were doing our research, I texted you. I said, "I know this name. Where is this?" Was he on the Pulitzer jury? Jury, mm -hmm. and it wasn't the jury. He was a finalist in 1950. Exactly. So he studied. Yeah, went to Juilliard for a couple of years and studied with with Wagner, and then somehow got involved with Paul Hindemith and went to Yale to finish right. up his degree. And uh, it's funny because you, we think of, I, Hindemith can be lyrical, certainly, but not necessarily what you think of. But he told Della Joyo that he should never forget that his music was lyrical by nature. And so... That's a great quote. <laughs> that, that is a great quote. Good teacher, because, you know, good teachers shouldn't force their their own aesthetics on their students. They should let draw it out of, draw their own individual uh, aesthetics. So that quote is really interesting to me because this idea of lyricism, we've seen a lot in the Pulitzer winners because, you know, we've talked about that this time, the 1950s is a time of real atonal composition. Yeah. Experimental comp composition. Yeah. And these composers who are winning the Pulitzer prize are not that they are lyrical, tonal kind of throwback romantic composers. And so in some ways, Hindemith was telling Della Joyo, don't worry about the fads of the day. You can't compose like that. That's not where you're going. Embrace the lyricism, embrace the tonality. Um, and that's what he did throughout his life. And I think that's one reason why, you know, we know him in the band world, because uh, the band world has always had a bigger tint in terms of who they embrace, just because the rep isn't as long and as deep as it is for, say, the symphony orchestra. But outside the band world, Della Joyo isn't that known. No. No, not at all. So that's something uh, something to listen for when you're listening to this particular piece, because I think it is very lyrical. And that, that is a fascinating point about how a lot of the previous winners, including fellow Italian-American Giancarlo Minotti, another right. one, are, are very much Someone lyrical. Someone with a very similar background. Yeah. Um, organist, yeah. <laughs> loved yeah. opera, mm -hmm. wrote very lyrical music. I mean, we're beginning to see a pattern. I think that's true just throughout the 1950s is the composers who won during this time period were really similar to one another. Yes, yeah, that's true. So very, uh, I don't know, there was something there. And then suddenly, well, as we're going to find, there's a big... There's a shift. Chasm, yeah, yeah, something happens. So And it could be the jury. <laughs> it could be, yeah, well, that, yeah, that remains to be seen for sure. Uh, but so there's the, the fact that the religious aspect of the piece, the lyrical nature is not a surprise at all for Della Joyo here. And uh, also, if you look through his repertoire, he won an Emmy 
for TV series, it was on the Louvre, or Music mm-hmm. from the Louvre. I think that was also another band piece, too. Or yeah, he, he arranged it for band, yeah. yeah. And also some religious pieces, of like an opera on uh, Joan of Arc. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so very much part of his whole consciousness. Well, maybe it's time that we go here behind the notes. Behind the notes. All right, so the Meditations on Ecclesiastes, which was, I think that's probably a better title than the original, which is a really boring title. Variations on a theme. It's horrible. <laughs> what a terrible title. <laughs> but if you look at his his output, he has a lot of variations on he it. Likes, <laughs> he likes variations, which is funny. That's one of my least favorite forms is variation theme and variations. So having, having to listen to lots of theme and variations is kind You're of... You're killing me. I love theme and variations. You do? I do. Oh. No, no, the Ives variations on America and Brahms Haydn variations, are, are, that, that's about as much as I can. Goldberg? Long. Oh that's my long. gosh. <laughs> Killing me. Back to Meditations and Ecclesiastes med- before yes, we have a yes. throwdown okay. about Bach here. I know, I know, I know. Uh, so this piece is divided up into 12 sections, which I think correspond to the verses, to the first or to, to phrases in the the verses. Right. I brought a, I thought it might be interesting to start. I yeah. brought the, um, I pulled up the actual quotation for the Bible. Great. Um, this is Ecclesiastes 3. I'll read it in King James Version, right? It'll be very, very formal. Very formal. New King James. Uh, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. And this is where it really starts for the, the titles of the separate sections in the meditations. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. Hmm. Okay. So very famous. Very famous. Full breadth of human experience encompassed in the, I mean, six verses. It's very short. Um, Full breadth of human experience. And I think that's probably one of the things that attracted him to setting this is just the amount of variety he'd be able to get Mm, off of of what essentially is a variation set. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you've got, you can, so immediately when you see dance, that implies a certain tempo or feel or death, obviously, something else or seasons turning things like that so uh it yeah it kind of makes sense and but of course you want to try at this time to have it cohere somehow and so not only formally is it coherent through theme and variations but you have a downward moving minor third right interval throughout uh which is something you hear it right from the beginning of the piece and then goes goes throughout and i mean the one thing that's interesting i guess about theme and variations is that it shows <laughs> it, it it's it gives a composer a chance to show off their craft and their that's right their different techniques and abilities and you definitely see that here uh, although I'd say of the twelve sections a great majority of them are very slow and meditative and we've talked about in the past those movements of symphonies that are slow and meditative and mm-hmm. how they can sort of drag a little bit. And there's, there's some moments in here, but the fast 
fast movements are quite spiky and uh, yeah i thought it might be useful to hear a little bit yeah, of the fast because i knew that. i knew that we'd be both be attracted more to the the fast yeah. movements yeah. to hear a little bit of the uh, a time to dance movement because that is the i think most upbeat the most um yeah my favorite one the most accessible one yeah get kind of a when you hear that you get sort of a jazz influenced you do rhythmic bassist and a little bit of bluesy syncopation and bluesy uh, pitches and stuff in there but you still have that falling minor third that is mm-hmm. kind of pervasive throughout the entirety of the meditation so that's still it's still there you can hear the cohesion as you move from from movement to movement yeah do you, I, I was trying to think about when i was listening to this who this sounds like or what the influences are and i could i it it's that same sort of piston sound that or he's the first one i could think of but that same sort of sound but i don't know if it's bartok or britain or some something like that it's sort of a tonalist with some dissonance and angular melodies it's it's very much of its time yeah it's very much and i wouldn't even say it's even of its time because this is it wins in 1957 it premieres in 1956 um to me, it's of, you know, 30 years prior. Yeah, it's right. Throwback kind of. It's really what it sounds like to me is kind of that um, that early neoclassical late 1920s or mm-hmm. 1930s time period. That to me is where it really sounds like. Um, to me, the big issue is. In trying, I think, to get cohesion, uh, orchestrationally, he ended up making it all sound the same. It's like this. Yeah, this brown gravy has been poured over everything. <laughs> but it sounds <laughs> Almost identical that it would jump from because I had it on play, you know, yeah. I listened to it a couple of times. I had it on on play while I was doing other things sometimes and it would move from movement to movement. And I wouldn't even know we were in a new movement. Me too. Me too. It, it, I wrote down in my notes needs some wins. Uh, it really <laughs> needs some color because it, it was yeah. just very monochromatic. Throughout. It really is. Um, another example to kind of show that I thought it'd be useful to hear two back to back so you can hear both how he contrasts, but also how similar it sounds. So uh, a comparison of time to die and a time to be born, which you would think are, uh, and they are different in terms of one's going to be more hopeful, more up, one's going to be more down. (laughs) But there's a lot of similarity. So let's listen a little bit to this comparison between a time to die and a time to be born. So that's some of the biggest contrast I could find. <laughs> but even that contrast is not that great. No, no. So I think I don't know if it just would I don't know if the term academic. It doesn't it's not really It's not really academic because academic, to me it's, it's but, you know I said earlier that the dance was the most accessible. I think actually the whole thing is accessible. Yeah, um, definitely. But it's it's accessible in a kind of easy listening way that it doesn't demand a lot of you. Now he yeah. paints the the individual movements, I think, very beautifully. So the idea behind a time to born to be born, a time to die, a time to mourn, 
a time to dance the the impetus behind each one of those it fits so you listen to it and if you know the title it makes sense musically mm-hmm. and lyrically and you understand it but it doesn't take much more it doesn't go much deeper than that i guess no no it was good music to listen to while i was preparing my class it was kind of in the background just sort of yeah just kind of going didn't stir too much and yeah so monot- a little bit monotonous yeah, I didn't have the moments where I really wanted it to kind of grab me and kind of pull me through. Um, I do think it kind of builds to the end. Mm-hmm. So the, by the final movement is probably the most interesting movement. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, the final two movements when you get to War and Peace and all that. Um, that's really, I think, where it kind of uh, hits its stride. Those are also, also the longest movements. So you have yes. a bunch of very short minute, half, two minute movements. And then by the time you're at the end, you're at three and a half, four minute movements. Uh, so there's a little bit more depth there. There's a little bit more contrapuntal writing, which is frankly what I really expected. Mm-hmm. I mean, so we know this from his band works that yeah. there's a lot of counterpoint and there isn't in these until you get to the very end. Right. Yeah. I think the, it, it, and it's not just because we're, it's that same sort of sound that we've heard a lot in this music that we're saying that the, the faster music sticks out more, but it really does because it, there's some life to it. And, right. Yeah. It's the yeah. syncopation. It's the syncopation. There's, there's Rhythmic so, life. Yeah. Right. There's so much mm-hmm. long lines. Yes. The yes. sameness that whenever you get to a little bit of syncopation, your ears kind of go, ooh. And that's why yeah. I think we both, I mean, the dance movement that hurt, I was like, okay, we've got to play a dance movement. That's great. Because yeah. it's enjoyable. It's fast. Again, it only lasts a minute and a half. <laughs> <laughs> it's the perfect length. <laughs> perfect length. Perfect length. <laughs> yeah. So. so I think that's maybe the drawback. It, it's clearly well written and clearly well put together and the, the intervallic relationships and the variations and everything there. But in terms of a listing experience, well, we'll get to that. I think you're already kind of previewing maybe what we think about the piece, <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm curious to see what else was in competition. Right, so, why this piece happened to be the one that would win. Yeah, so maybe we should do hit or miss and talk about that. All right. Hit or miss. Okay, so back to our jury report from April 3rd, 1957, written by our favorite member and chair of the jury, Chalmers Clifton, points out that the Committee on Music for the Pulitzer recommends for first prize meditations on Ecclesiastes by Norman Della Joyo. The decision was unanimous. Wow. Yes. So he says the piece, now this may, actually this may shed some light here. The work was originally designed as music for a ballet. That makes a lot uh, of sense. Does that make, yeah, it might change the way Because I know he it. did work for Martha Graham, with Martha mm. Graham a lot during his lifetime. Yes. And uh, received its first performance in uh, Juilliard. There's a recording of it. The work is contemporary in character, euphonious and ingratiating in sound, and representative of the composer, who has attained unquestioned distinction and recognition in many musical media, symphony, chamber music, and opera. So in some ways, it sounds like they went, he's a great composer, he deserves a Pulitzer, it this is the piece like we're going to give it to him for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It does sound like it. So the other, uh, there was only one other second choice, there was only one other option this year, and it was Paul Creston's Symphony Number no. 5. More than 95 works were examined by attending performances where possible by records, tapes, and scores. Okay. So on that premiere at Juilliard, it was Jose Limon and Dance Company 
though I guess it was actually choreographed. You have Symphony for Strings, music by William Schumann, our first Pulitzer right. Prize winner. Theater piece number two by Otto Luning, and then variations on a theme by Norman Della Joy. So it didn't even have the name. It didn't even have the title by that point. But it point. was first. Huh, interesting. Yeah. So I'm so, going to go back to Creston. You kind of skated over Creston. To me, it's interesting that, that Creston is there. Um, because in my mind, Creston is right in line with Norman Della Gioia. I see the two of them, like a Walter Pisson you mentioned earlier. I mean, like, like these composers mm-hmm. we've been discussing, that they are of that kind of mid-20th century American East Coast style that was fairly tonal, uh, with a little bit of adventurous harmony, um, writing in traditional European forms and genres. Um, so I can very much see how you would look at the two of them and say, yeah, one of these two. Because if that's the style that you're looking at and wanting to award, then it makes sense that those are the two you have next to each other. Well, that was very uh, prescient of you to say that, Andrew, because they, they agree with you. In Chalmers' letter, he says this decision for Norman Del Joyo first and then Crest number two was also unanimous. The committee also agreed that both compositions were of such excellence and so unquestionably at the, quote, top of the list that either choice would give us satisfaction. Mm. <laughs> so I think we're mm. getting, I think we're kind of starting to get into this jury's mind, especially the Chalmers Clifton era jury. Yes. <laughs> of what they like and what they're going for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I find it interesting that there's a, a rather the, the, the paragraph on Creston symphony is longer than the Della Gioio. Mm. Mm. I could probably say more about the Creston yeah. symphony. than. Well, probably. this is interesting because this piece has no life. It has yeah. no legs. <laughs> I mean, it has just disappeared. <laughs> the one recording, at least the one on Spotify, is by the Philharmonia Orchestra and David Amos. Amos. I don't know anything about it. Yeah. Well, and even, you know, we always comb through the New York Times or... Yeah surrounding newspapers to try to see what the review is of the first performance. There wasn't one. Um, Mm -hmm. The only mentions in the New York times, like in its entire history of the paper was the announcement that it won the Pulitzer. I mean, this is one of those pieces that has just completely disappeared. Yeah. Yeah. I, wow. I I don't, I mean, you don't even know what to respond. That's not the first Pulitzer Prize winner that's completely fallen off the map, or the at least the composer is still performed, uh, right. unlike some of the other winners. Well, it's not like Giants in the Earth, which, no, no, which never <laughs> even can't even a... get a recording of. <laughs> I mean, this is yeah. a little bit higher, but it's interesting that we've now hit two or three that um, won the Pulitzer, and then the piece just completely vanished, completely yes. disappeared. Yeah. Like, even in terms of the output of the composer, people don't go back to this work. They say, oh, yeah, Norman Della Gioia won a Pulitzer for this piece. And then we're going to play the wind band work or we're going to do the choral work or we'll do right. one of his jo- mini Joan of Arc <laughs> pieces. <laughs> That's what gets played and not Meditations on Ecclesiastes. Yeah. Even though in many ways it is really representative of his style and mm-hmm. of his influences. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned that why on the... Uh, on the jury, we of course we've got Chalmers Clifton. We have uh, Miles Kastendiek. Right, he was. This is the second year in a row he was um, again on the jury the year before. Um, so this is the second time that he has shown up. Not a remember he was a um, literature scholar. He's not. That's a right. Not musician. a musician person. Mm-hmm. And then William Bergsma. His so this is Norman Della Joya's buddy from Juilliard. Right. Apparently, 
<laughs> known for tonal conservative works, which this would fit into yeah. that. So, yeah, it, it, this could be another one of, hey, Norman, it's your turn. It's time to give you something. Yeah, this is, yeah. I think we've seen, so we're now 15 years into the Pulitzer. I think we've seen that uh, up until this point, it's very much been um, an old boys club mm -hmm. of, all right, it's Norman's turn. Yeah. <laughs> he gets the Pulitzer this year. That seems to be that they just kind of, they cycle, all of them cycle in and out of the jury. They're awarding each other. Mm -hmm. um, they're going to each other's premieres. They're supporting each other, which is, you know, what American music needed in order to be successful uh, is to have this kind of um, mechanism by which they could award uh, prizes and that people would support each other's music. But it has become a very insular club over these 15 years. It'll be yes. interesting, interesting to see where it goes over the next 15. Definitely. So I'm just guessing here, but I, I'm imagining that we both feel similarly as to whether this is a hit or a miss. <laughs> Uh, I, I definitely would say it's a miss and I much prefer turn, turn, turn by the birds and Pete <laughs> Seeger to this. Uh, yeah, this is definitely a miss for me as well. This is not one. There's some of these pieces I have, I know that I'll be coming back to the Pulitzer. This is not one of them. No, no. Pretty, uh, it's just, it, like we said, I think it's the monochromatic nature of it. It just really doesn't, doesn't make much of an impact. No. Um, yeah. Well, that's it for this episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. As always, you can find more about this project at our website, hearingthepulitzers.com, where you'll also find links and a short bibliography where you can read more about Norman De La Gioia. Also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at hpulitzers for links between episodes. And finally, join us next episode. We'll be exploring the fourth opera to win oh. in the 1950s, Samuel Barber's Vanessa. Until then, keep listening. <laughs>